Hey everyone, this is Forrest. Welcome to Being Well. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. And this is just about our 300th episode of the Being Well podcast, which is just wild to me. I've learned an enormous amount from doing this podcast personally, and in the five years we've been doing it, I've talked to over 100 experts in psychology, personal growth, and mental health. And there's a lot of information in all of those episodes, and it's certainly been hard for me to absorb all of it in the moment. And on nice round number episodes like this one, it feels right to kind of take a step back here and really think about what we've learned. And to help us do that, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and of course, he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good and thoroughly psyched about this topic. And what a cool thing. So let's dive in. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's going to be a little bit different from how we normally do our podcasts because I went through our pretty much whole back catalog of episodes and a lot of the summaries that I had created to prep for the different conversations. And I thought that it would make sense for us to start by me kind of talking through what I've learned as a, as a non-clinician, somebody who hasn't been working with people for 35, 40 years or however long you've been doing it for. And then I would love to have you chime in with any thoughts that you have about some of the big lessons that I've learned, your take on it, uh, anything you'd like to add. Does that mostly sound good? Oh, yeah, definitely. To guide what we focus on, I mostly think about this podcast as being about two big things with a lot of smaller things sprinkled in there. And the first one is how do we change? In other words, what supports a person in getting from where they are to wherever they want to be? And that's going to be different for every person. And then the second thing is just education and understanding. We do a lot of psychoeducation on the podcast, a lot of like talking about big topics and ideas, sharing them, popularizing them, hopefully, and helping people learn a little bit more about themselves. And so most of the takeaways that we'd be talking about today fall into one of those two categories. And the first lesson that I've learned is that everything starts with your context individually and that there is no one right way. And I think that one of the things that people really struggle with in this whole territory is they're looking for a really simple and clear answer to their problem. And often there isn't one because the answers that are given are generalized answers for hundreds of thousands of people who might be looking for the answer to that question. When the truth is that your individual context is going to have such an overriding influence on your ability to get value from a particular intervention that generalizing in this territory is really, really hard. So I can tell you what like the average person benefits from when it comes to mindfulness practice or dealing with borderline personality disorder or OCD or whatever else. I mean, of course, I'm a non-clinician, but I can summarize those studies for you. But all of those studies are just talking about averages. They're not talking about you. And so there's a translational problem a lot of the time um, whenever we dig into these topics with people. So what do you think about that, Dad? I think this is really deeply important. Point one, from a practical standpoint, if we are the result in the moment, for better or worse, of dozens of factors that vary depending on the individual, that means we have dozens of ways we can tune our lives where we do have influence to make things hmm. better. Good news. I like that spin on it. That's a really good spin on it. Way to like positive psychology that up there, dad. That was good. <laughs> well, I got to work my brand, but actually <laughs> it's like for me. But it's super my, true. Yeah. My brand is pragmatic scruffiness. 
if I were to mm. kind of summarize it, you know, keep keep churning. You know the story, of course, about the frogs that fell into the vat of cream. Of oh, course, churning it to know. butter, yes. Yeah, exactly. Old Froggy, the one that survived, just kept churning. That's what they're going to put mm-hmm. on my tombstone, still churning. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, although actually I want to open out into infinite uh, spaciousness and okay, loveless. Yeah. Okay. So, the, so the workaholicism <laughs> is going to follow you into the grave oh, is what no. I'm hearing from oh, you here, no. Dad. That's that's what I'm taking away from this. But please, please continue with your macro point here. Workaholism. I think we're more like a work <laughs> ethic. But, uh, okay, but okay. 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 Point one. Point two, in what you just said is for me something really, really tender about mm. a kind of honoring devotion to the sacredness of each individual expression of reality. It's the kind of thing where you, you're you on the beach, you reach down, you pull up a single grain of sand, and yet when you just start looking at that single grain of sand in the sunlight, it's marvelous. In, in much that same way, maybe something of the same way, to bring that sense of particularity to yourself, your own uniqueness, what is it like to be you in its texture, its granularity, its nuance, its detail. And in a sense, you're saying, much as we can't effectively broad brush humanity altogether, it's really important not to bring that broad brush to yourself. And then two other observations briefly that are a little more general. You've probably heard me tell this story. I heard it when I was much younger even than you are now. Uh, (laughs) When I was at the tail end of college, And it was apparently the case that there was this great handbook of human psychology. So it would take an entire library of information about what it is to be human and the many ways to be human and summarize it in one of these handbooks with 600 pages of fine print. And then in the back of the handbook was the 50-page appendix that summarized the summary. And in the back of the appendix to the handbook for the library (laughs) were three sentences (laughs) that summarized all of it. And mm-hmm. the three sentences were, some do and some don't. The similarities are greater than the differences, and it's more complicated than that. Hmm. And I so remember that. Yeah. Then the last thing I'll just say, much as you pointed out early on, social science research is essentially about averages of groups. And there's a real unfortunate thing that happens, and many scholars do this routinely. They generalize to individuals from the average of the group just through the use of language alone. Like, for example, classically, there might be some sort of finding that out of a sample of a few hundred people, women maybe you know, use more words in a day or speak more words in a day than a comparable man does on average, right? Let's suppose that that's a finding. And even that sort of finding is controversial. Let's suppose it's a finding. But then to just generalize from it routinely, well, women talk more than men. Suddenly you've gone from the average of a group to a generalization about an entire class of people. All participants do this. Yeah, Yeah, just based on the nature of language alone. So that's a really important thing to pay attention to. Yeah, totally. And this takes me straight into my second point here, which is that the fact that so much of this is contextual and so much of this is individual, means that cultivating a, a capacity for insight into your own mind, your own psychology, and your own process becomes just truly essential. Yeah. Because 
I can tell you again a lot about the averages, but I can't tell you about you. Only you can tell you about you, or maybe you know your individual clinician or counselor if you're working with somebody and you cultivate that kind of a relationship over time. Yeah. So this means that it's essential for us to be able to see ourselves clearly.、Mm. And it's also really hard for us to see ourselves clearly. But in my experience, insight is like kind of a dime a dozen for people a lot of the time. It's essential, but it doesn't necessarily lead to change. Like I know so many people who have enormous insight into their behavior, into their thoughts, into their feelings, into their personal history. They can tell you the story of their childhood and what it means to them today and how it influenced them until they're blue in the face. But that doesn't necessarily allow somebody to move from insight to taking action in their life or to changing the things that are causing them suffering. And I think that it can actually go even further than that, where insight can become a kind of trap,、mm. where we get so into our own insight about ourselves that it deceives us into thinking that we're doing something about it. And I've definitely fallen prey to that one in my own life. How do you distinguish, let's say, having an idea about yourself?、Mm-hmm. From a kind of realization that is liberating, that frees you about something. Have you ever had a realization about something when, in the realization, there was a categorical shift? Yeah, this is a this is a totally great point. There are white light moments for people. I've had white light moments myself. My experience is that、uh, there's there's a line in that I think it comes actually from Zen Buddhism, but it comes from Buddhism broadly: gradual cultivation, sudden awakening. Yeah, and、Tibetan. I do, th- yeah, yeah, Tibetan Buddhism that I, that I do think happens for people where they have these sudden awakening moments where they just go, "Wow, I can never again have another beer."、Mm. That that does happen. Yeah, I think there are these things that can happen psychologically、mm-hmm. where there's a kind of gestalt that occurs where things come together or there's a feeling of almost completing. Something you suddenly realize something, and there、mm-hmm. becomes an irrevocable shift,、mm-hmm. and you don't even need to go back to it again. There was just a shift. You got a complete release on that. I think that does happen. It's mysterious. I think still, even at the level of neuropsychology, what exactly is happening in the brain? You know, that's so wonderful there. So that sort of thing does happen. I agree. I think people can chase that. Way too long, and so much of what happiness in life is about is acting on what you know. <laughs> That's the key: acting on what you know. I remember a conversation、uh, that we used to have regularly when I was a teenager in my early twenties, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And you asked me some version of, "Oh, Forrest, what do you want to be when you grow up?" Yeah. And as we've talked about in the podcast previously, I'm not somebody who's always had like a really clear answer to that question.、Yeah. But I remember saying something along the lines of like, "Well, I feel like I have these really great ideas about things, and I can really figure out how to do stuff. But I'm just like not really so interested in the execution part of it. I love the ideas, but I, I don't really like care about the execution. So maybe I'm just an ideas guy." And you just laughed and laughed and laughed because like. Who doesn't want to be the ideas guy, right? <laughs> I mean, every everybody thinks they have great ideas because because they do.、Yeah. Uh, but like, great ideas are are kind of a dime a dozen, you know. Like,、yeah. it's it's really easy to have a great idea. It's really hard to to have a great product.、Yeah. And something happens in between idea and product that makes it hard. For me, I think that it's the acceptance piece, which I'll get to in a second. 
But to your point, there's like some mystery there. So the takeaway from that is getting good at helping yourself to want to implement related to your ideas, to helping yourself want to take action on your ideas. Mm -hmm. That becomes a really, really, really important thing. And that also is where I think, for me at least personally, insight can come in. Like for a long time, I could just feel an inhibition in myself about taking action on certain ideas that would make me more prominent. Because being prominent in school was scary and dangerous for me. And so I did not want to be prominent. And unfortunately, that internal inhibition really suppressed some of my own self-expression. It took actually years for me to kind of work through that bit by bit by bit by bit because it was getting in the way of implementing, you know, the ideas that I did have. And so I'm just, you know, there is a place certainly for insight, I guess, but also just like you're saying, I think the key really, the older I get, you know, it's about action, including internal action, helping yourself rest in whatever you know to be true. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if this was a a deliberate good podcasting move by you, Dad, but you've segued me almost perfectly into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was wants and needs. <laughs> so that example that you had there a second ago, which was about this internal inhibition that you had. Yeah. And I think that the question of like what moves us from a moment of insight to actually acting on it has a lot to do with our drives, our motivations, right? And the more time that I spend in the personal growth mental health world, the more that I come to believe that understanding our wants and needs and those of other people is really kind of the secret sauce to this whole thing, to building healthy relationships, to liking yourself, to feeling like you're getting something out of your life. Because thinking in terms of wants and needs is a way for us to get to the really bottom layers of of what truly motivates our behavior. And I think that it allows us to translate temporary states of motivation into more of a long-term practice of doing an alignment with who we want to be. Because even going back to Freud, he thought a lot in terms of drives. And like Mm -hmm. it was Freud, so of course there were only two drive states and they were essentially sex and aggression, right? Life and death. (laughs) Um, But but drives are a way of talking about our needs. Like what do we want from ourselves or for ourselves and what do we want from other people? Just speaking really personally about this, my own journey, which has included a lot of internal struggle, like a lot of wrestling with my own psychology, became so much simpler when I was able to actually drill down and identify what some of those deeper wants and needs were. And that was like huge for me in my own process. So it wasn't just a step of identifying my wants and needs. It was accepting them into myself and then learning how to talk about them to other people in ways that like felt safe for me so that I could actually get my needs met in relationship so that I wasn't just like one boat going along by myself, which was really my tendency for a long time. Would you be willing to tell us one or more of those? Oh man. Um, deep needs. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about how much sharing I wanted to do about this before we started recording the conversation. And a lot of them are like relational in nature and are therefore fairly private. If I were to, delve into your question for myself, it seems to me that there are numerous wants and needs that are socially acceptable. We may not be so in touch with them, but like, for example, if someone were to say, well, I want to feel loved, this seems pretty- Very socially acceptable. Yeah, it's poignant, it's touching, it's, it's really important. 
kind of building on what you said in the beginning about being an individual mm-hmm. to move past the cliche of it all and to really claim it for oneself, to own it. But then what about wants and needs that maybe are more divergent? I was talking to somebody recently who has specific access needs where they have things that due to their unique neuropsychology are a little harder for them than they are for other people. And these were needs that were not well responded to and not well met when this person was younger. And because of that, they have a lot of shame around accepting them as just parts of their structure, parts of their brain, parts of their psychology, parts of whatever it might be. And I could see in this person how much that was a struggle, Mm. like accepting that part of themselves was a big source of pain and suffering. And it's easy for me to sit over here and be like, you know, your life would be so much easier if you just accepted this, this need that you have for more support. But like, you know, that's very easy for me to say. But now I think that it's a huge issue and a major source of of healing and growth for people when they're able to go through that journey with what they really need. And this shows up in relationship also all the time. Like my relationships got so much simpler when I started just asking myself the question, what does this person really want from me? Or like, okay, what is the need this person has that my current behavior is not meeting? Because it's really easy for us to get, you know, wrapped up in rounds of dialogue around essentially minutiae, like symptoms. But what does me not doing the dishes enough say about the nature of the relationship to this other person? That's the real question. Like three plates are three plates, who cares? But it's the communication that underpins it that almost always gets back to a want or a need in myself or in the other person, at least in my experience. What do you think about this? I think... That cutting to the chase as fast as we can with what other people really want and what they really want from us is super useful. In -hmm. part because you may get to the bottom line in that they want something you're just not going to give. Totally, totally, yeah. Or very often you realize I could give them all or at least most of what they want or maybe I could help them experience what they want through a different form than they're asking for. They're not going to get the whole pie, but they're going to get, you know, most of the filling <laughs> that they really, really care about. So getting cutting yeah. to the chase, I, I found that incredibly skillful and helpful and flip around, being able to name as soon as possible and early on what it is we actually want from other people, particularly in terms of our deeper priorities. I would have named something myself with some disclosure here. One of the things that is not so socially acceptable that I like, and I've come to appreciate that I like it. I want it. I care about it. One is intensity. Sure. Yeah. I like having a little bit of intensity, Mm -hmm. maybe playing volleyball. (laughs) You know, there's an intensity there. Or having a really intense interaction with somebody, a good conversation. Sure. The the or, charge, the buzz, yeah. Yeah, or being up against it in rock climbing. You know, the intensity yeah. of, Wah! okay. You, like you that. got that sympathetic nervous system rev, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And I've had people, including your mom, looking askance at me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my desire, like, turn it up. 
that's an example. And I just want to normalize stuff like that. Another, I would say a deep longing in me is to be alone in wilderness. Mm. That just calls to me. I love it. One way or another, being alone in wilderness. Many forms of mm. wilderness, including just being outside, looking up at the vastness of the sky. Being yeah. alone. You know, I love that. And it's also actually true, one more thing that's not so socially validated, is there is a deep longing in me. And I'm not saying these are unique to me. I think I'm actually naming things that many people really do want. There is this spiritual longing for ultimate peace. Ultimate peace. That's how it kind of shows up, that ultimate, mm. that ultimate sense of inner peace. Anyway, so, and it's been something for me to kind of come out with those wants over the years and sort of stand up for them, including stand up for them inside myself. And alongside this whole thing is just the reality that like other people have wants and needs too. Like you're saying, these are not wants and needs that are unique to you. These are probably fairly common ones. Yep. But we are really not great societally at having a conversation about them mm -hmm. and accepting them generally and like coming to terms with the truth that, yeah, I want stuff and you're going to want stuff from me as your child. And I don't have to give it to you just because you want it from me. Yeah. But I kind of, you know... It's not that I need to be okay with that you want stuff from me, but man, I sure get a lot happier when I come to terms with the reality that people are going to want stuff from me. Well, I wondered if I could knock on the door and invite you to maybe name a somewhat divergent want that you have, kind of along the lines that I did, or not so, sure. not so socially normative, say, that you've come to terms with. I think a kind of complicated one for me has been essentially receiving emotional support from other people, huh. which on the one hand is like as normative and as, of course, everybody wants this thing as you can get. And on the other hand, I think is often like a very fraught want for people, mm. particularly in terms of like reconciling it with the rest of my nature. Because I present, I think, as like an extremely top-down, cognitive, neurotypical white guy, which is all true. All of those are true statements. And at the same time, I've had to really reconcile the more sensitive, emotional part of my personality, mm. which is, I think, like somewhere between, you know, 51% and 81% of like who I am actually. And most of the other more top-down aspects of who I am appeared as essentially a response to external stimulation. You know, I was rewarded for these aspects and therefore I leaned into them. But the bulk of what I experience as my nature is much more relational, much more warm and fuzzy, quite sensitive emotionally. I will claim that for myself. And that's been a real journey coming to terms with like that more vulnerable part of who I am, particularly in a cultural context that certainly for men rewards a lot of like pretty dominant behavior that is not my natural orientation mm. and pretty like aggressive, classically masculine parts. And at the same time, I've got a lot of those too. So those parts are there and I don't want to like devalue them, but the journey that I've had with the softer, more emotional parts has definitely been like very rewarding for me as I've come to like accept that like, yeah, I'm just kind of a softy. That's like who I am and it is what it is and it's okay. And it doesn't make me like a certain kind of person or it doesn't like devalue my gender socialization or however you want to say it. Like I can think of myself as both being 
a very emotionally vulnerable person and also being like a manly man at the same time. And that's okay. And that like feels good to me. Does that make sense? Well, it makes total sense. And you're <laughs> naming, yeah, you're naming yeah. something real that yeah. I'm not sure you exact language did, you know, in for, in, not that you made a yeah, mistake yeah, or ahead. anything, but in terms of as a want, but mm -hmm. you're really talking almost about a part of you or a characteristic of you, right? Totally. And yeah. well, and the desires of that part to use the language of like internal family systems. Yeah. Yeah. And accepting those desires as a as a part of my whole self. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to kind of turn now a little bit from Good. these sort of big principles that we've talked about mm -hmm. to the more practical parts of, okay, so this all sounds nice, but how do I get from point A to point B? Yeah. So to summarize the, the three big ideas that we've talked about so far, I put them something like context is really important or context is critical to use something that sounds a little bit more like a phrase you would read in a, read in a pop psychology textbook. The second is insight is a great start but it's not the whole journey. And then third is if you want to figure out why you're doing what you're doing, think in terms of wants and needs and really try to bore down to the deeper layers of that consideration. So that's the context. So then it's like, okay, sure, that sounds great, but how do I actually get from point A to point B? My experience with this personally is that I went through so many attempts early on in my life to change big habits or deal with major issues through short-term bursts of heroic effort. And I think that that's how we set it up by and large socially. You have a New Year's resolution. It's a really big New Year's resolution. You pursue it aggressively for a short period of time, and then you fall off the wagon once and you give up. That's pretty typical, right? And instead, I think that like there's this idea from James Clear that has become heavily popularized, which is that you want to try to get 1% better every day. And if you get 1% better each day, you'll be at something like 35, 37 times better at something by the end of the year. Mm. Okay, cool idea, right? What I take away from that simply is that consistency is key. And if consistency is key, then one of the most important things a person can do is find something that they can actually commit to, right? Mm. And a lot of my metaphors for this come from the gym because I go to the gym and developing a practice around that has been a really big part of my life. And if you start going to the gym and if you look at a good program for something, they're going to tell you to start by putting no weight on the bar. Hmm. You're just moving the bar when you're lifting, even if you're a strong person. And then every single session, you increase the weight just a little bit. You put five pounds more on the bar, five pounds more on the bar, five pounds more on the bar. And that doesn't seem like much. And a lot of people start by saying, wait, but it doesn't feel like I'm moving any weight. And it's like, well, okay, but if you increase the weight by five pounds a session, you're lifting 135 pounds in 18 workouts. That's not a very long period of time. And that change is change that you can commit to. So a huge tactic for me personally has been to start embarrassingly small. Like mm -hmm. start with a change that is so small that you would feel dumb if you told a friend about it. Like if your goal is to develop a walking habit or an exercise habit or something like that, start by walking for five minutes. And then the next day, walk for six minutes. The next day, walk for seven minutes and don't break the chain. And if you can commit to that, by the end of the month, you're going to be walking for half an hour every day. So a lot personally, the way it shows up for me is I'm just paying more and more attention these days to how rapidly am I coming home to a resting state that 
has a sense of equilibrium in it that is that feels basically rested in ways that are familiar to you of you know in terms of peacefulness contentment and love those three kind of together with a sense of ease in the body and a spaciousness of awareness that's not very attached to what's flowing through it that kind of summarizes a pretty good place right and definitely it's it's one that I've I've been seeking and gradually, you know, developing over the years. So that would be mm-hmm. one example uh, just mm-hmm. to offer to people that, yeah, we can do that. Great example, yeah. The other that is in effect not opposed to what you said, but it's a different kind of thing. And I wonder what you think about it. Yeah. Like with many, many couples who would come to me, I would just see that they were caught up in a in a wrangle dynamic that was like a vicious cycle in which both of them had become sensitized to the other person. And the best thing I could do for them was to get them to zero. And I basically would give them homework. Between now and when we meet next time, do not fight. Sure. Do not quarrel. Go to zero. And it's a little bit like if your leg is broken, you want to put it in a cast, which prevents stressing the fracture point. You want to take stress on the fracture to zero so the normal mending can occur. And there's a categorical difference between zero and any. So going to zero. And then if you fall short of zero, it's very clear. And you're gradually trying to trying to approach it. You know, how close can I get to zero? Like with your mom, you know, my aspiration is zero exasperated contentiousness <laughs> coming from me. That's a great aspiration. <laughs> Love it. I'm still working on it. <laughs> but I know what zero is and it becomes yeah. kind of fun to go after that. Maybe it's like an asymptote. You never quite hit it, but you can always keep approaching it. So what do you think about the zero aspiration? It's not incremental. It's going to zero. Yeah, we talked about this recently in our conversation with Eric. I also think it came up in a mailbag that we had. And I think that the the whole idea of going to zero is great, totally essential. For me, when I'm talking about this kind of consistency, a thousand small steps, I'm mostly talking about behaviors that we're building rather than behaviors that we're removing. Oh, okay. But that being said, I think you can apply it to removing as well. You know, in terms of negative interactions with other people, I think it's meaningful to go from having 10 negative interactions in a week to nine to eight to seven. But I also think that there's a place for dramatic effort, particularly in the service of saving a relationship. Yeah. And a lot of the time when people are at a moment where they're walking into a couple's counseling office, it's because they've hit the rubber meets the road moment in their yeah. relationship and, and they can't do incremental change anymore. They need something dramatic. Yeah. But I just kind of wonder to bang on this a bit. Yeah, please bang away. Are there not behaviors mm-hmm. where you just know that there's no upside? There's no good reason to do it. Sure, totally. Habit makes us do it, but the bottom line is really, you just never need to say that, where it's never going to turn out well. You know what I mean? I mean, there are a lot of a lot of things fall into that category, <laughs> yeah. And then what's our relationship to those things? Do we actually take it seriously that we recognize that there's just no good reason to do it? Yeah, and I I think that my, my kind of proposition here, which... could be true, could be not true, is that most of the lasting change that happens for people around those issues occurs based on consistent effort over a long period of time, as opposed to dramatic effort over a short period of time. That's what I'm just talking about. I'm talking about the application of pressure to the boulder. Yeah. Am I doing a little bit every single day? Or am I trying to do a lot and then going, ah, I'm exhausted? Because the question is always, can I sustain this behavior 
for long periods of time. And that's often deflating for people when they first hear it because they want change now, understandably. They want relief now. It's really hard to tell somebody who's in a lot of pain, like, well, get back to me after you try it for six months. Like, Oof, that's, that's hard. But I also think that it's kind of the reality of most lasting transformation in people's lives. I love this combination. In other words, both can be true, which maybe goes to one of the points you were going to make earlier about about contradict, seeming contradictions or, you know, including both and. Oh, sure. We'll bring that in here. Love that. Yeah. 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 So it can be really true that you can know that doing certain things just has, has no upside that's worth doing. It's just not a good idea. In effect, I'm foregrounding something that we've never really talked about, which is a kind of categorical view that a person can have where the light bulb goes on and they go, you know, from now on, I need to turn left at that intersection. Now, to be able to build up the habit of turning left, when previously you've been really drawn to turning right, that definitely is incremental. Totally agree with that. But I just am, I'm really interested in that kind of categorical revel- insight for people where they just kind of know. You can show, you can think about substances, you know, of different kinds. Some people realize, you know, I just need to never buy another cookie again. You know, if I'm at a party and one's one's there, okay, but never buy another cookie again. I think you're totally right. That absolutely happens for people. And then again, like my my interest is what allows them to sustain that commitment. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there are people who quit cold turkey and yeah. they never do it again and they're just done. Yeah. But like what supports them in doing that? And what I think that you see from for most people who are able to sustain that kind of a change is that it was the culmination of a million other things. It was the culmination of a thousand tiny steps that they didn't even know that they were doing prior to that moment of insight that like finally got them there. To use an example that's like kind of close to my life because I uh, my primary social scene is the dance community. And in the dance community, there is a lot of casual alcohol use as, a, as like the party drug of choice. A lot of people who have, have issues with excessive alcohol consumption And you totally have people who wake up one day and go, you know what? I just shouldn't drink at dance conventions anymore. That's bad for me. But how they got there, that was not like a shining moment of individual insight. They got there because they had 10,000 awful experiences where they drank too much. Yeah. And and those were the 10,000 steps. Those were the incremental yeah. changes, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. that culminated in what <laughs> appears to be right. this that's moment right. of sterling insight for them. Yeah. So so I guess that's kind of my, my rejoinder about it. And, and like, like, I also think that there are moments where we just like go, wow, I have to change this. But again, I think that most of those are motivated by pain. Yeah. You know, I, I hope for people to have moments where they just like do a bad thing and they go, wow, I should never do that again. Yeah. But like, I think that's uncommon. This is great, Forrest. To kind of underline my the point I'm kind of bringing forward here, it's to encourage people, and I'm trying to encourage myself as well, when you realize something clearly, value it. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, the implementation of that valuing could well be a thousand little steps, but when you realize something clearly, value it. Yeah. I mean, be careful you're not getting attached to your view and getting self-righteous and blah, blah, blah. But basically, you know, maybe after you kick the tires a few times, value what you know to be true. I love this because it loops back to another big picture thing, which is just the value of acceptance. So the word that I would use for me is accept it. 
just as you say, value it. I think that they're totally interchangeable and they're both like equal pieces of the yeah. same puzzle here. Yeah. Because we, you just see this. People go through cycles where they have that moment of insight and then it doesn't coalesce for them. Yeah. So why doesn't it coalesce for them? And for me, it's because they're not valuing it or they're not accepting it fully. And then, okay, what helps us accept it? Well, being able to manage the pain that comes with acceptance. Most of the time for most people, alongside that acceptance, there is some truth or some insight or some something that causes a person to feel pain. Maybe it's just the recognition that like what they've done in the past is not in alignment with like the person they want to be. That can create a lot of shame for a person. There's distress tolerance here. And that to me is another big piece of this, which is that distress tolerance is a total superpower. Mm. And is for many people going to be a key determining factor of whether they're able to turn insight into change is can they handle the distress that accompanies acceptance for them? Right. Distress broadly, as you know. Yeah. Discomfort. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So distress, tension, discomfort, emotions, tolerating tension. your own feelings, staying yep. present with your feelings, you know. All of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you see this pattern that arises, right? Where people start kind of oblivious to something. Yeah. Then they have that moment of insight. And then what accompanies that moment of insight is pain, mm. broadly speaking. And then there's a big question there, which is, can you accept it even alongside the discomfort? And so if you're able to cultivate distress tolerance, that's what helps somebody get to acceptance. And I think that once you get to acceptance, this whole other path starts, which is the question of, okay, what do we do to integrate this into our life? And that's where I get to all the practical stuff about change science and incremental steps and ABC. So I think it's really interesting that we're kind of speaking to almost these two different parts of the process, which is, Dad, you're really highlighting the white light insight moment and asking the question, huh, huh, what helps you integrate that? What helps you turn that into the next thing. And for me, I think it's that acceptance valuing piece. And then alongside that, distress tolerance, the ability to tolerate the discomfort that comes with acceptance. I think that's a great summary for us. So there's the, it's kind of like the recognition of what's true. And that with that, I called it valuing, you called it accepting, where we really let it land, like, yeah, we honor it. We own it, we honor it. And then on the heels of that are all the implications and sometimes discomfort of walking down a different road or deferring, you know, deferring rewards or not getting rewards that you used to get from mm -hmm. going down a different road than the one you're now trying to help yourself stay on. I think that's a great summary, really great summary. People listening right now, honestly, I would, I would just say right now, is there something that maybe in the back of your awareness but in some place that feels very kind of almost sacred, maybe like, yeah, you know something that's true. Maybe you, it's, a, it's a knowing about a relationship you're in. There's something you know about it. Maybe it, it's knowing about a job you're in or knowing about your own psychology. Is there something that you know is true that you've kind of maybe wished you didn't know is true because of the distrust, discomfort that would surface if you actually let it land, what you know is true. What's one thing you know that's true that matters that would be good for you to act upon? It could well be that you know something is true about your own inner psychology. Like you know you have a tendency to be really hard on yourself. That's just unfair. 
what might be that one thing. And maybe there are, there's more than one thing perhaps, but at least one thing. What's one thing you know is true? Well, I'm really glad you did that, Dad. That I think was high impact and also kind of brought it out of the out of the clouds, which I could sometimes get into of the big picture of it and into very much the felt experience of it. And just talking a little bit more about distress tolerance and kind yeah. of sharing how I've been thinking about it and just getting some feedback from you. Yeah. One of the things that thinking about distress tolerance has has done for me is helped me think about the way that change works in general. And all change, by definition, involves some movement from the stable base of functioning that a person is at right now. And all systems, all biological systems, most social systems, this is like a reoccurring finding over and over again, seek to preserve their homeostasis, even if that homeostasis is unhealthy. And that's a really powerful finding, right? That we seek to not change, even if the way we are is painful, unhealthy, uncomfortable, dysfunctional, whatever. And this means that almost by definition, all change involves a degree of discomfort. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's really, really painful. That doesn't mean it's, oh my God, it's impossible or overwhelming, but involves some amount of discomfort. And alongside that, there might be a lot of positive experiences, and those positive experiences so overwhelm the discomfort that that form of change is pretty easy, which is great. But there's still a little bit of discomfort there. And this means that being able to tolerate that discomfort is essential to being able to change. And so you've got three strategies. You can make the change less painful, and this gets back to all of the incremental change stuff that I was talking about before. You can make the change more enjoyable, and this includes, hey, look at that, taking in the good. Or from Katie Milkman, who we talked to, temptation bundling, right? You're including something pleasurable alongside the behavior that you want to cultivate. Or third, improving your distress tolerance as a whole. And I think this is a really interesting category for people, and it's often accomplished by developing different kinds of inner strengths or learning to trust ourselves more. A lot of people struggle with change because they don't trust that they can do it. They don't trust that their insight is actually real and authentic and, and complete in that moment, the way that you were talking about that. Or it could be through external strategies like improving support network or feeling like you're able to lean on people. That can include getting better at learning how to ask for help or expressing your wants and needs to others. So those are the three big strategies, right? And I think that if you look at most of change psychology, you will find that the tactic falls into one of those three buckets. And so a really useful question to ask myself when I've been trying to change something is, how can I do one of those three things? How can I make this change less painful? How can I make the change more enjoyable? Or what can I do to kind of shore myself up as a whole entity so I can get through this moment in time? Got any thoughts about that? There is this thing I think about, uh, which is how do you help yourself globally become more able to lean into the change that you seek mm. and, and to become increasingly frictionless? Yeah, you talk about this a lot, and I really like this. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's this line in Buddhist psychology that as a result of our mental training, so it's your training, you're training the mind, which means you're gradually exercising and changing your brain as a physical organ, quite analogous to exercising and changing the structure 
of a muscle like your biceps. And as you train your mind and you steady it, it becomes malleable and wieldy. Now, those are words that are kind of traditional translated words. You know, malleable means that you can change it. And wieldy means you can use it. Mm. And so how do we promote globally the development of a mind that becomes increasingly malleable and wieldy, right? In which there's less and less resistance to change. Fantastic. And there's yeah. a steeper learning curve. You become more and more, I call it a, being a one-trial learner. You know, the rat that goes down the, the tunnel the first time that has the cheese and it doesn't keep chasing other tunnels. It goes back to the tunnel with the cheese, right? You're a one-trial learner. So how do you actually do that, right? How do you become that person? And I think that's where growth mindset comes in, where you start developing that attitude. It's one in which you embrace the change process. And it's also one in which you have the courage to die a little to the old ways, to be willing to be different and to tolerate even as well the uncertainty of who you are becoming. And then I think even underneath it all, a factor that helps us become more uh, changeable, more learning prone. Maybe that's a better way to put it because you don't want to be totally changeable in problematic ways. I mean, useful, beneficial, positive, learning prone. Also, ultimately, is a kind of inner trust in your innermost being that deep down you're a good person. Deep down, it's because you're a good person, it's okay to make well-intended mistakes you don't have to freeze to figure every single thing out before you take a chance. The person who is always afraid to take a chance is taking the biggest chance of all. Well, I love that. And you said a second ago, like, what helps us do that? What helps us become more that person? And I, I wonder if this is part of the reason that mindfulness has become such a studied and effective intervention. Because if you think about what are we doing when we are being mindful, well, we're cultivating insight. We're doing some exploration of our inner realm. We talked about how insight is the great starting point for all of these things. We're being fully present with it. That's a form of acceptance, right? Mm. And then what is mindfulness if not the development of a kind of distress tolerance? Because when you're being mindful, right, you're not falling prey to some of the immediate drive states of your mind, the search for stimulation at a very basic level, which is a kind of pleasure-seeking you're willing to sustain the discomfort of just being as opposed yeah. to constantly filling that up with some something else that distracts yeah. you from the state of being. And, and I just wonder about that. I wonder if that's part of the secret sauce of mindfulness and why it's become part of so many different kinds of psychological traditions. It makes total sense to me what you just said. Total sense. Yeah, it, it, it does make sense to me. And the final thing that I would just say here is that the time's going to pass either way. And that's a lesson that I've learned painfully as I now enter my mid-30s uh, as time has gone on. And, you know, the time's going to pass either way. Do you want to be somewhere different or are you okay with where you are? And it's okay to be okay with where you are. But, you know, how do you want to use your time? It's beautiful, Forrest. And just recently, maybe to finish here, reflecting on my, on my own life and also reflecting on in a world that's full of challenges and changes, what are the things that we can take refuge in, and, and to know about ourselves. And these become fundamental values, no matter what the results are. Did you live today with a good heart? Did you make efforts? And did you learn along the way? Those three, good-heartedness, effort, and learning, just seem to be fundamental values. And if the answer is yes, it was a good day. And may you sleep well and have good dreams. 
I think that's a great note to end the conversation on. So today I had a wonderful time talking with my dad about the things that I've learned from our 300-ish episodes of Being Well and talking to all of the great people we've had the opportunity to speak with. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. It was a little bit different from our typical episodes, in part because it was a lot of me talking, and also because it was more of an overview of everything that we've learned in the previous 300 or so episodes of the podcast, and just some of the big takeaways that I've had personally from all of the conversations that we've had with the many experts that we've talked to on the show. Now, I am going to summarize our summary episode during this outro here, but I also wanted to take a second to talk about one final idea that we didn't quite have time for during the episode itself, but Rick mentioned it, uh, so I wanted to loop back to it. And it's this theme that shows up in psychology in general that gets to the integration of opposite things. And it's a kind of coincidence that shows up over and over again, where you bring together these two opposite ideas into a dialectic with each other. And it's through being able to do both of them that you actually get to a healthy state. To give an example of this, there's this balance between acceptance and change that comes up over and over again where we both accept who we are fully, we accept where we are fully, we see ourselves in a kind way, and then also we have the desire to change in some meaningful kind of way. Or we bring together more top-down processes, my really cognitive parts, with more bottom-up processes, maybe my more emotional or sensitive parts that I talked about during the conversation. Or in our relationships, we include both intimacy with our partner and a kind of individual autonomy for ourselves. And if we fall too far into intimacy, that can lead with issues like enmeshment. But if we are too autonomous, that can create issues with avoidance or just frankly having like a hard time getting as much as we could out of our relationships in general. And it's really easy to look at this bringing together of different parts as a kind of hypocrisy or a, oh, if you're saying this, then does that mean that you're not saying that? But the truth is that we're involved in complex systems, and these are just different parts of the same complex system, and it's by marrying them that we're generally going to get the best results. And that loops all the way back to the very, very first thing that I talked about, which is that so much of psychology and personal growth and happiness altogether is about your individual situation, your individual context. And because of that, there is no one right way. If somebody is telling you that there is one right way to do a thing and you are not doing it the right way and you really need to do it this other way, they're probably trying to sell you an online program. And this gets us right into the second point, which is that because we are so individual, it is really important for you to develop a quality of insight into your individual psychology and to be clear-eyed and honest with yourself when you look into your interior. And that's a skill. That is something that can really be developed over time. But alongside that, while insight is great, it's just the beginning of the process. And it is so easy for people to become essentially trapped in insight. They listen to all the podcasts and they read all the books and they can really reflect on their individual psychology and tell you all the names of the disorders and recite back what happened to them when they were a kid. And and all of this is great. All of this can be really useful for people. But the real question is, how's that working out for you? Like, what are you doing with that information? Has it helped you become higher functioning, happier, more fulfilled by your life as a whole? And if it hasn't yet, that's really interesting. And that's a place to look. 
And that takes us to the next point, which is that if you haven't done something with that insight yet, a lot of the time that's because there's an acceptance problem here. And often we struggle to accept things because acceptance includes acceptance of a degree of pain. All change involves some degree of discomfort. So then distress tolerance, the ability to sit with that pain as we recognize the truth of whatever is going on inside of us, well, that becomes a real superpower. Because by being able to sit with it, we can accept it fully, we can value it, as Rick said, and then we can start making choices about what we actually want to do differently in the future. And many of those choices are going to connect to our individual wants and needs, which is why one of the best places to have insight is insight into your true motivations, your deep wants and needs. And we talked about this a lot during the episode. And then next, I talked for a while about some of the big takeaways that I've had around the practical how-to of change. How do we go from part one, where first we're oblivious, then we have some insight into something, and then we're able to accept that insight, often because we're able to tolerate the discomfort related to it a bit more effectively, and go into a phase where we go, okay, this is true, now what do I do about it? And what I've seen in my own life is that most of the time when we win, we win through consistent effort applied over a long period of time. Change is sometimes a white light moment where it's one big leap for a person. And Rick talked a lot about this during the episode. But more often, it's a thousand really small steps. So a critical question becomes, what change can you commit to? What change can you do, not just today and tomorrow and this week, but next month and next year. And a lot of the time, that change isn't going to feel that big. It's not going to feel that dramatic. It's going to feel, honestly, a little underwhelming, like a little boring. But then you'll find six months from now, you're still able to do it. And that has been so impactful for me in my life. I used to be the grand gesture guy, where I was like, okay, every month for a year, new big habit we're building. And I just couldn't sustain that. I couldn't do that. That didn't work for me. But what I could sustain is going to bed five minutes earlier tonight and then going to bed five minutes earlier the next night and so on and so on until finally my bedtime's in a reasonable place and I'm waking up a bit earlier and that's really supporting my life in all of these different ways. In addition to the many things that I said during this episode, I really liked what Rick added toward the end, this idea of valuing your insight in a full way and trusting yourself throughout this process. I think that for so many people, one of the biggest struggles is the struggle around believing themselves, like believing the part of them that really does know that, hey, this behavior isn't for you anymore. Or wow, you really need a little bit more help around this thing. Or oh, I do care about that a lot. And I'm uncomfortable that I care about it a lot, but I care about it a lot. Like that kind of self-honoring of the better parts of who we are is just such a struggle for people. It's been such a struggle for me in the course of my life. But it's also so essential and it has an enormous role in whether or not we're able to change in the ways that we really want to. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, I hope that you enjoyed our previous 300 episodes. I'm sure there is at least one person out there who has actually listened to every episode of the podcast. And I mean, I'm 
so flattered and so thrilled by that. And just the idea of it, it's just honestly so wild to me. And I didn't think that we would be here when we started, but I'm so glad that we are. And just a huge part of that is the incredible support that we've gotten from listeners of the podcast since since day one. And on a personal level, I really appreciate the ways in which people have supported my role in this whole thing. A lot of people who came to the podcast did it because they were fans of Rick's work. And over time, I think that it's been a platform that's really allowed me to develop my own creative voice and my own voice around these topics. And I just really appreciate that. I'm just really grateful. So again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. And until next time, again, just thanks for being a listener and I'll talk to you soon.